0: Can find one in the chair in front of you. I think, uh, I think Paul is going to be an equal opportunity offender here in today's passage. It's, uh, it's a tough one. So follow with me as I read to you Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11, and then I will pray. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we want to come humbly before your word today as it uh, probably assaults us all and certainly will correct us all. Would we ask that by your spirit you would uh, open our eyes to see these truths as they are in many ways opposed to to who we are in our sinfulness and and to our, our natural thoughts. So Lord, give us uh, open eyes to understand your word, give us soft hearts to obey it. Father, may we be uh, found faithfully proclaiming the gospel not only in this valley but to the ends of the earth until you return. We pray the same this morning for covenant Presbyterian that they would be faithful to your word, that they would trust the power of your word and the gospel by your spirit, to be used by you to call people to yourself, Lord, that they would, uh, and, and we would be um, seeking not only to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to disciple the people that you have brought here as Trinity Baptist or Trinity Walla Walla, but that we would also uh, seek to reach out and to share the gospel with those uh, who have no idea of what you have done for us, and you have done amazing things in love for us. Father, we pray for our missions partners in uh, Southeast Asia who we cannot name but uh, but who are faithfully working to share the gospel there. Lord, we, we praise you uh, with them that the translators who are working on translating your word in their language are uh, beginning to believe uh, that, that Jesus uh, is and that he did the things he did and uh, that his word is true. And, and Lord, while they uh, may not have come to a faith yet, we pray for that, that they would come to a saving knowledge of Christ and of, of what he's done on, on our behalf and how he has paid the penalty for our sin. Lord, we pray that, uh, or we thank you and, and praise you for the fact that the translation work there continues to go well. Lord, we ask that more and more people would believe in your word over the Koran, that they would trust Jesus there and that they would uh, be saved as a result, Lord. We ask for continued, uh, clear communication for them as they seek to, uh, to share Jesus with, with the people uh, who they are living among. So Lord, um, just reveal your word to us today, give us humble and soft and receptive hearts to it, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. I grew up going to church, and if, like me, you grew up going to church and maybe went to Awana or led Awana or some other children's ministry, you are probably familiar with a song that is frequently sung in these children's ministries. It goes something like this, I may never march in the infantry. You know it, right? What's the rest? Ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery, I may never fly or the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. Here's my question. If you, by faith, have become part of the church and are part of the Lord's army, where is the front line of that battle? Where is the front line of that battle? Well, I think what God tells us through the Apostle Paul in this passage today is that the front line of that battle is my own heart. My own life. My own mouth, my own sin. The the supreme battle in the Christians, uh, for the Christian rather, is in our own lives. It isn't the culture. The culture and the people out in the world are not our enemies. It isn't communism. All human governments are run by sinners. And it isn't consumerism. We find ourselves falling into that sinful trap as much as anybody else and feeding our flesh. The supreme battle of our lives, the God-glorifying and honoring fight that we must fight is against our own hearts, our own sin, our own lives. And the truth of the matter is, I think one of the things that's easy for us to do is to look outside these doors, look outside these walls, watch the news and say, look how bad everybody else is, and to overlook ourselves. And our own sin, I shared last week that, uh, that I, I believe it was Thomas Watson who said the sins of the church are far more offensive to God than the sins of the world. And we'll talk more about that today. Our supreme fight is not against the sins that we perceive to be outside of these walls, but in our own hearts and in our own lives. And so as we think about being on the front lines of that battle, Paul is going to give us three imperatives to fight, three commands of where to fight on this front line. And then he's going to give us six reasons as to why we must be in the fight, and then one way to have victory. Let's look first at these three imperatives or these three commands. The first one is to put to death the sins of the flesh. Look with me at verse five. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now this is, I got to tell you, as I've been studying Colossians, it is maybe in many places some of the most difficult translation work I've done as I go from Greek to English. And this is one of those incredibly hard phrases, or maybe, uh, maybe it's not the most hard uh, syntax that, that I've seen, but, but it's, it's, a, it's a phrase that I struggle to make sense of at first. This is literally what Paul says here. If, if we were to translate it literally, it would be this. Put to death, therefore, the members on the earth, or of the earth. Put to death, therefore, the members on the earth. We would say it like this. Put to death, therefore, the earthly body parts. The word members there is, is, is the word for like a body part. Uh, when Paul says that we are one body and individually members of it, this is the idea here. This is decisively body part language. And so that is why I say that what he is telling us to do here is to put to death the sins of the flesh, what is earthly in our bodies, our, our worldly body parts. And then he gives us a list of five sins to put to death. The first is sexual immorality, and we're not gonna spend a a ton of time on any of these, but I think they'll uh, clearly show us what they are. The first sin that we are to put to death is sexual immorality. The Greek word here uh, is porneia. You can hear our word pornography in it. it. It is a reference to any sexual activity outside of marriage. Any sexual activity outside of marriage. Now, as a church, that should give us pause for a moment. Think of that. Any sexual activity outside of marriage. It's really easy. To, to look at the world and, and what our culture is pushing right now as one, uh, one particular area of sexual sin and to single that out as being the worst or uh, that we, we can't tolerate that or we have to stand against that. But Paul isn't saying, hey, pick on whatever is prominent in your culture today. He says, no, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, any sexual activity outside of marriage. We can't pick on any sin, and particularly the ones that we may or may not be guilty of. The second word is impurity. And and this, if the first one refers to activity, the second refers to desire. This is any sexual desire outside of the marriage of one man and one woman. Specifically, Paul is saying any sexual desire outside of your own marriage. Not only acts, it's not just acts that are wrong, it's desires that are wrong. The third in the list, passion, is is lust of any kind. Fourthly, evil desire, any kind of foul or debased desires of a sexual nature. And, and, and in four words, bam, he just calls us all out. Nobody, nobody is free of this list. Nobody's in the clear. Nobody says, I have no work to do. Nobody can say, I have nothing to put to death in me. And then the fifth thing, it seems like it's out of uh, uh, Out of step with the rest of the list because he's listing specific fleshly, uh, mostly sexual sins, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and then all of a sudden he says covetousness, which is idolatry. Is this unrelated? I don't think it is. I think what Paul does is presents to us this list of five and the capstone of it is covetousness. It's not a side thought, it's the overarching thought. Let me see if I can explain why. All of these things, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, none of them satisfy and all of them demand more. The very heart of covetousness is coveting what wanting, desiring what I do not have. And when we begin to indulge ourselves in these sins, they always make demands for more and more and more. Ted Bundy was a convicted and executed serial killer. He admitted to having killed 30 women, and they think that he possibly could have killed more. On one day before his execution... Or I think that execution may have been stayed, but at the time of this interview, he believed he was going to be dying the next morning. Uh, ultimately, he was executed in the late 80s. But there was, uh, outside of the prison where he was in Florida, uh, there was hundreds of reporters making requests to get an interview with Ted Bundy. And he, uh, all of those requests were denied except for one. He asked for one interview, and he asked for Focus on the Family's James Dobson to come and to do an interview with him. So the night before, or the day before he's supposed to be executed, he sits down with James Dobson, and basically the question Dobson asks him is, how did you get here? What happened? And he says, over and over and over and over again, I can't blame anyone or anything for my actions. I did it, it's my fault, it was wrong. I mean, he just keeps saying that over and over. I made no excuse. Now, he he claims to have been a Christian to have believed in Christ at the end of his life. And if those statements are in any way evidence of his repentance, then that may well be true. But he asked James Dobson to come and to have a conversation with him because he wanted to warn people. And what he wanted to warn people of was the dangers of pornography. And he recounts his journey, how what he, he encountered in a grocery store, what he called soft-core pornography. And then he desired more and more and more. And they didn't satisfy And this is is the reality, this is the experience for so many. It's why we actually have medically classified diagnoses of sexual addiction and why you can go to Sexaholics Anonymous. It demands more. It's, It's covetousness, it's greed. There's never enough to satisfy oneself and it demands more and more and more of us. He, he went on to talk about cable television and how much of it was fueled by the violence and sex he saw there. I Think of how much easier it is today with Netflix and HBO and various other things. And this is not unrelated. These sins demand more, and they take hold of us. Well, what do we do if we're stuck in these, though? My encouragement to you is if you are stuck in any of these, to any degree, ask for help, ask for help. This is what the church is here for. I'm afraid sometimes that we think that what the church is, is we come in on a Sunday morning, we, we consume a service, you know, like we're watching Netflix, and then we go about. And the whole while we're here, we put on a good face and we present to people this idea that we're perfect and we don't have any struggles. And that's, that's not the call of what a church is to do. Galatians 6.1, which you have on the screen uh, in front of you, says, Brothers, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. As we struggle with these burdens of sin and and the desires of our hearts to do things that are wrong and and not good for us, we should seek help from each other. We should bear one another's burdens, which is what verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so we are to put to death the sins of the flesh. One of the commentaries I read uh, gave an analogy of a a worker on an assembly line who gets his thumb caught uh, in a belt, and he's being dragged along to certain death as this machinery is going to crush him. And and as he's being drugged along, uh, he finds an axe or like a hatchet within hand's reach and grabs the hatchet and cuts his own hand off. He loses a hand. It's not a pretty picture. Certainly painful for him. But it kept him from certain death. These things, these sins in our life, they are worth cutting out. Painfully, if necessary, I am not advocating for literally chopping off body parts, but spiritually. These are things worth cutting out of our lives. Paul also calls us to put away the sins of the heart, verse 8. But now you must put them all away. And we get this list of five sins as well. While the first five sins are primarily sins that we do in action with our bodies, these second lists, or this second list of five sins can be present where no one or maybe just very few people ever see. He says, put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Anger refers to chronic anger. This is the kind of anger that people might not even know you carry. It's deep-seated. It's, it's resentment and bitterness. It's, it's a long relationship of, of just growing anger towards somebody else. And sometimes we can be really good at keeping that hidden. Who do you have a deep resentment towards or a deep frustration towards? Who, who is it in your life that the slightest of things can set you off because you're harboring resentment in your heart? Maybe it's friends or family or kids or coworkers. The second in the list is wrath. Wrath, unlike anger, which is deep and chronic, is outbursts of rage. It's it's not that I am angry all the time. It's just that when you push the wrong button, boom, I explode. Maybe you aren't struggling with anger, but maybe you are prone to blow up. Do people walk on eggshells around you? Are they afraid to upset you? Do you yell or cuss or cry? Curse out people who aren't doing what you want, when you want, how you want. The third is malice. It's, it's spite. It's just it, the first two have gone so far that now I just want bad things for you. I'm having a hard time with my mic here, sorry. We might call it karma. We might call it whatever we want to, but just generally... You've done enough things that have irritated me that I want bad things for you. Slander, the Greek word here is blasphemeo, it's blasphemy. It is simply speaking badly or speaking untrue things about someone, or maybe the combination of both. It might be true but negative, or it just might be untrue and negative, but it's speaking badly of others. How do you speak about your coworkers? about your spouse to your friends, about your children, about anybody, about your neighbors? How do you speak about people? I'll I'll just tell you, as a general rule, however you talk to me about other people is how I assume you talk about me to other people. If you think somebody is slandering others to you and not slandering you to others, probably not the case. If you will speak badly and gossip about others to me, you're probably doing the same thing about me towards others. And then lastly is uh, obscene, uh, what exactly does he call it here? Obscene talk. This is just foul language or dirty talk. These are sins that, that flow out of a, a sick heart. Thirdly, we're told to put aside the sins of the mouth. And you might say, well, wait a minute. Aren't slander and obscene talk sins of the mouth. Well, they are, but really they're, uh, they're an indication of something much deeper. Uh, Matthew 15, 10, and 11, again on the screen. Uh, Jesus called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into a mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. It's not what we eat that makes us unclean. It's what comes out of our mouth that reveals the sickness of our hearts. But here I say uh, we must also put aside the sins of the mouth because Paul, uh, he he singles out one sin as particularly heinous. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. Why, Why would he single out lying as especially hideous or especially offensive? I think the reason is because we, as God's people, as ambassadors of who God is and what he has done, we are to be people who give witness to the truth. Jesus is the truth. His word is true. And if we are going to have any kind of witness to the world about what the truth is, then we must speak what is true. We have no business having a shaky relationship with with the truth. I kind of want to say this cryptically, but um, around a certain holiday in December, we never lied to our children about what it was about. Certainly we played around at it, and they might get gifts from some jolly fat guy. But, um, but we always told them what was real and what was not. Because if I'm willing to lie about one person uh, during that holiday season, how do they know that I'm not willing to lie about somebody else? And if I, if I lie about who, who uh, that holiday is all about for years and years, and then they find out I was lying to them, how do they know I'm not going to be deceiving them later? Anytime we play with the truth, anytime we're willing to lie, it casts seeds of doubt in our truthfulness about other things. Now, okay, we're supposed to put to death what is earthly in us. We're to put uh, away uh, the sins of the heart and we're to put aside lying, sins of the mouth. The question before us then is why? Why must we do that? Well, I think Paul in this section gives us six reasons to put aside these sins. Number one, they're idolatry, verse five. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then when he singles out covetousness, he says, which is idolatry? Now, linguistically, this is referring back to covetousness. Covetousness is idolatry. But I think think it's right biblically to say that all of these sins are idolatry. We can't reduce ourselves to thinking that idols or idolatry exists only in shaping an image and bowing to it. Idolatry exists simply when we seek our satisfaction in anything other than God. If I just have this thing, if I indulge this sin, if I look at this website, if I treat this person in this way, I'll be happy. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. should be on the screen for you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. In other words, they had been supporting him as a missionary. They had not been able to support him for a while. And now they're supporting him again. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity to send money, that is. And in verse 11, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, He doesn't care about whether or not they send him money. He cares about their hearts. He says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and and need. In other words, I know how to be content when my bank account is full and when it's overdrawn. I know how to be content when I know where my next meal is coming from and when I'm starving. I know how to be content in any circumstance. And he was shipwrecked and beaten and stoned. And the list of what, what Paul went through is on and on and on. But then he says that he's learned the secret of contentment. What is it? Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. His joy was not in the circumstances. His joy was in Christ, and nobody could touch that, and no circumstance could touch that. He he didn't make an idol of money or food or anything else. When our joy is in Christ and not in the idols that we desire, no one can take that away from us. So, uh, number one, we put these sins away because they're idolatry. Number two, and we don't like to talk this very, about this very much, but it's true, God's wrath is coming. God's wrath is coming. Look at what he says, verse six, on account of these, of all of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. Romans one is clear that God is storing up wrath for the day of judgment. We should not think that God is not angry at sin. He is angry at sin. We should not think he could look at a Ted Bundy or anybody else we could think of and go, oh, that doesn't upset God at all. The reality, if we're being honest, is I'm okay with the idea that God's angry at your sin. I just don't like the idea that he's angry at mine. But he's either angry at sin or he's not. He's either angry at injustice or he's not. And he is, but yet there is only one way to escape the coming wrath, and that is Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians chapter one, verses nine through ten. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Idols. You turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. See, what happened is when when Christ became one of us and he lived a perfect, sinless life, it's not only death that he didn't deserve, it's wrath that he didn't deserve. And if we want to know how angry God is at sin, all we have to do is look to the cross. He condemned Jesus to die in our place. The cross is not just a picture of grace. It is an indictment against our sin. It is the picture of what we deserved. And Jesus deserved no wrath. And he did not deserve to die. And yet he willingly goes to the cross to bear the wrath of God in our place. And we see it as the sky is darkened and the earth shakes. And God will either pour out that wrath on sinners for eternity, or he poured it out on his son in our place. John Piper said, the wonder of the gospel is this, that the God we needed saving from is the very God who saved us. What is it that God rescues us from? Hell? No. That's a subpoint. Death? No. That's a subpoint. I mean, those things are true, but primarily what God saves us from is his own wrath. And as believers in Christ, we must look at these sins as, as the things for which Christ bore God's wrath. It's an analogy and a picture that breaks down, I know, but it helps me in my own thoughts to, to see and to think about the fact that every time I sin, it's like I'm pouring out another measure of wrath on Christ, Can we see now why the sins of the church are so much more offensive to God than the sins of the world? Jesus saves us from the wrath of God, and there is wrath coming on these things. It baffles me how much, even in my own heart, but even amongst Christians, we are willing to entertain ourselves with things for which Christ bore the wrath of God. If you can comfortably watch Game of Thrones, something needs to change in your heart. Netflix and HBO, and it's, it's just access to the kinds of things for which Christ died. How can we entertain ourselves with those things? And we do it like they're meaningless but they're not meaningless. God's wrath is coming. Thirdly, we don't live there anymore. Number three, we don't live there anymore. Uh, wh- let's make sense of that. Let's look at um, verse seven. In these, that is in these sins, you too once walked. Walked is, is just uh, another word that Paul uses for lived. I, I think he likes to use the word walked rather than lived because it, it, it implies intentionality it implies motion we were moving into that world intentionally we walked in these sins when when we were living in them but we don't live in that world anymore As believers in Jesus Christ who trust his goodness to rescue us from the wrath that we deserve, who believe that he died in our place and that we receive forgiveness and eternal life by simply trusting what Christ has done for us, we don't live in that world anymore. We are strangers and aliens in this world. We're no longer citizens in it. I know it's hard to watch what's going around in the culture around us, but brothers and sisters, I believe that the world is just doing a favor to us. It is removing our attachment from this world. It is reminding us that our citizenship is in heaven. It is reminding us that we are not, first and foremost, American Christians or Americans or whatever. We are Christians. We are strangers and aliens in this world. We don't belong here, and we're awaiting our future in heaven with Christ. We, we don't belong in this world anymore. And fourthly, you're not that person anymore. Using language like getting dressed and undressed, in verse 9, Paul says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off. The old self, taken off the clothing of the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Now one of the things you can do in Greek is you can take a word and you can put prepositions on the front of it and it makes it just much stronger, makes it much more forceful. And this idea of of putting off the old self has two prepositions stacked up on the front of it. It's very strong language. It's like Paul is saying that the old self has been stripped off completely. We didn't just take off our shirts like we're in some kind of shirts versus skins game. That old self is gone. It has been stripped off completely. And when we stripped off the old self, we put on the new. We are not that kind of person anymore, and those sins are no longer fitting for those of us who are in Christ. And fifthly, we are under construction. Look at the rest of, of verse 10. In in 9 and 10, those, those verbs are active. They're things we did. We put off the old self. We put on the new self, but it changes here when he says this new self which is being renewed this is passive it's not something we do it is something that is being done to us we are under construction god is making us into something different he's making us into the new man and we get to see what it looks like we are being uh, renewed in the knowledge after the in, or in knowledge after the image of its creator we're being renewed. We're under construction to be made to look like God. About 20 years ago, I had a friend who uh, went to Seattle. She was walking the streets of Seattle with her husband, and they saw a jewelry shop, and they went in. And the jeweler was in there, and he had this like uh, little pot thing and a a really hot burner under it and every once in a while he'd walk over and he'd look in and he'd scoop something off the top and set it aside and finally she asked him she's like what are you doing he said oh I'm purifying silver I put the silver in the pot and I put the burner under it and it gets real hot and the silver melts and as the silver melts all of the dross rises up to the top of the molten silver and I just scoop the dross off I scoop the impurities out and I set it off to the side and she says, oh, well, how do you know when it's done? He says, that's easy when I can see myself in it. This is what God is doing to us. He is renewing us. Sometimes it's over the fire. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes life is hot. But in those moments, what comes out of us, Well, sin is going to come out of us one way or another either in action or by the removal of it. But God is actively removing those sins from our lives. And how do we know when he's done? When he can look in us and see himself, when we look like him. We are under construction being made to look like God. And sixthly, sin destroys what Christ has reconciled. Verse 11 seems very out of place at first. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, that's uh, that's onomatopoeia. It's an onomatopoeic word in Greek. It sounds like what it's supposed to represent. Barbarians were people who spoke a different language, and all they did was babble, bar, 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 barbarian. It's a derogatory term. Scythian, lower than a barbarian is a Scythian. Nomads, vile, disgusting in their thinking. Slave or free. But Christ is all in all. Okay, Paul, why did you just switch from all this language about these sins of my flesh and my heart and my mouth to to talking about race and saying, uh, or what we would call race. I think there's only one race, the human race. These are ethnicities. Why would you switch all of the sudden to to, to language of, of ethnicity? Because I think here we see our greatest tendencies towards sin. What we do, I think this is the greatest picture of it. What we do in racism is we, we find ways to make ourselves better than others. But it's not just racism. We do it all over the place. Oh, my skin is a better color than yours. My heritage, a better heritage. My country, a better home. My, my job, a better job. My education, higher. My bank account, fuller. My class, higher. We find any way we can to elevate ourselves over others and to diminish them and their value and their worth. And we start really young with things like, my dad can beat up your dad. We're experts at creating division amongst people. But I think all of these sins do the same thing as racism. If, if I give vent to sexual desires in, in, in these ways, I have to objectify somebody whether it's on a screen or in person, you exist for my pleasure. I am better than you are. I don't care how destructive these sins are to you. That girl on the screen or that you meet somewhere, she's somebody's daughter or sister. When we blow up at people in anger, we're objectifying them. You're just an object for me to pour out my wrath on. When we lie, We we put others underneath us. I am worthy of the truth, but you are worthy to be manipulated. But... Christ is all in all. Christ is the unifying factor across all things. There there is no room for any of this. There's no room to objectify anyone. There's no room to classify yourself over anyone, whether it's race, gender, ethnicity, social class, Education, slave free, Jew, Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian free, it does not matter. Every single one, believer or unbeliever, is made in the image of God and we must not objectify them as somebody to be used by us for our own sexual or uh, heart or lying gratification. It's again the capstone of where we see us building up walls that Christ has torn down. And there's no room for any of it. Anywhere. Period. Sin always destroys relationships. And this is where we see in all of these sins our greatest desires to objectify people. Christ eliminates every dividing line. There's only one way to have success. You might be sitting there thinking, how am I supposed to have success in that, Logan? You can't just tell me to quit these things. I've struggled with this my whole life. I've struggled with lying my whole life. I've struggled with anger my whole life. I've struggled with lust my whole life. How can you just say, uh, just, just put these aside and be done with them? Well, Paul does not just say put them aside. He tells us very precisely how we can have victory. And so there is one way for victory, number one, and that is personal renewal in the knowledge of God. Look with me at verse 10. Having put on the new self, the new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Knowledge biblically always implies more than knowing about somebody. In the Old Testament, we often read that a man knew his wife, the result was that she would become pregnant. Knowledge, the idea of knowing somebody, bears this idea of an intimate relationship with. And and we do the same thing, by the way, in English, even if we don't use it in in the same connotations. If I told you this morning that I know Dwayne the Rock Johnson, you might want proof. You want me to prove to you that he's my friend? Well, I know that he was born in Hayward, California on May 2nd, 1972, that as a boy, he grew up in New Zealand and he played college football for Miami. He was arrested as a teenager for fighting and theft. And I could go on and on and on. And you might sit there and and think to yourself, you can get all that information off of Wikipedia. And I'm here to confirm you can, because I did. I don't know Dwayne Johnson. I might know some things about him, but I don't know him. Now, if I said to you, I I know my wife, that would be a completely different statement. I could learn some of those facts about her on a first date. But almost 22 years of marriage now has yielded not just knowledge of the facts about her, but I know who she is and, and what she is like. I know that she's organized, highly organized. But you know what? I'm much more organized now, too. I know that she loves beauty. And I appreciate beautiful things much more now than I used to. She loves the outdoors and I love the outdoors more than I ever did before spending time with her. I know about her, but I also know her. I know how she responds. I know what she loves, not perfectly, let me tell you. Sometimes I get it wrong, but the other day I sent one of the kids to the store. Uh, They they came home with with two things and I said, mom's not going to like either of those. And they said, oh, I thought mom would like both of them. And mom comes in the room and goes, I'm not going to like either of those. (laughs) You learn how people interact with the world. Uh, That's what it means to know somebody. When we really know somebody, they change us. We're different for having known them. They, they, They captivate us and they take a hold of us. And the same is true of God. God didn't reveal himself through an encyclopedia of facts. He gave us a book that's mostly narrative, mostly story. In the Old Testament narratives, and even the New Testament narratives, we learn how God conducts himself in the world. Just like 22 years of marriage has shown me how my wife conducts herself in the world. The prophets reveal to us what his plans are for the future, just like we sit around and dream about what the future might look like. The gospel shows us what the heart of God is like and his willingness to save us. The epistles, the the letters in the New Testament, they show us his plan for the church. But you don't take somebody on one date and then you say, I know him. You didn't go on one date with somebody and be like, got you all figured out. It takes time. The same is also true of God. You don't read through the Bible once and go, bingo, got God figured out. What's next? It takes much more time than that. As we read his word over and over and over again, and we see what he is like, what his heart is like, what his plans for the future are, what he desires of us, what he loves, what he he doesn't love, as we take him in that way, he changes us. John Bunyan wrote in the cover of his Bible, either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Because when we we spend time in God's word, learning who God is, and we take him in, we can't help but to become like him. And in knowledge, we are being renewed after the image of his creator. Now you can know facts about somebody without having an intimate relationship with them. You can know a lot about God without knowing God. But you'll never have an intimate relationship with God that exceeds what you know about God. If you you are willing to entertain low thoughts of God and think what you think about God and his word and his church don't matter, you're relegating yourself to to simple things, to, to a lack of intimacy with God. We need to know much more than just facts about God, but our our knowledge and love and likeness to God will never exceed what we know about Him. So, what we think about God matters. I'm going to close with one final thought from Soren Kierkegaard. This is what he said He said, The truth is a trap, you cannot get hold of it without getting caught. You cannot get hold of the truth in such a way that you catch it, but only in such a way that it catches you. Lord, we know that you are the way, the truth, and the life. May we both know about you and know you. May the truth of your word and the truth of your son and the truth of who you are trap us and captivate us and that in that knowledge we might be renewed into the image of our creator, that we might put away these sins. Lord, keep us from the sin of of the Pharisees, of, of nitpicking the sins of others while making excuses for ours. Let us be far more concerned with our own sins, our own offenses to you, for we know better. And let us be quick to proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified, who lived perfectly in our place, who deserved no wrath but bore it, who deserved no death but took it, and was resurrected three days later so that those of us who trust him and his goodness and not ourselves and our goodness might be forgiven and receive eternal life and be saved from the wrath to come. Lord, thank you that you are a God who is angry, who is angry at injustice, who is angry when when people are exploited and abused. But let us come to grips as well with the fact that that, um, if we have not trusted Christ, you are angry with our sin. And if we have trusted Christ, that you were angry with our sin. And reconcile us to yourself and to one another. And conform us into your image in knowledge as we know you and love you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.